1: Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.
2: You ain't worth a damn! Everybody should count you out. The world should count you out. Damn it, you should look in the mirror and count yourself out. I've heard that before. So is Tamron Hall. She's up next on No Mercy. First things first.
3: Who gon' stop me high? Breath a mood that I make, I give it everything I got, cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break, the heart of the brave, the soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up.
2: Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the latest edition of No Mercy with yours truly, or one and only Stephen A. Smith. Coming at you as I love to do every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Check your podcast stratosphere. You'll find No Mercy live and in color over the airwaves. I say in color because I speak with color. You don't have to see color. No colors coming through the screen because this is your boy Stephen A. Talking to you. That's why it's just that simple. You know, thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, because there's always something that I want to talk about. Knowing that my guest Later on on this show is somebody who's endured her trials and tribulations, former reporter in the news industry, former big time television host. Cast aside, shunned, considered left for dead, essentially, in terms of her career, but is now back on the scene in an incredibly, incredibly big way. And she deserves to be praised and lauded for what she has achieved and what she has accomplished and what she will accomplish in the future. Plus, she has a very, very compelling personal story about a family member who was murdered, how it's inspired her to make a difference in a lot of different ways. We'll get all into that as today's podcast progresses. But here's what I wanted to talk to you about today because thinking about her, her story is not too dissimilar to what a lot of us go through in this day and age. A lot of us go through in our lives. And the theme of today's show Don't count me out. Because ladies and gentlemen, the fact of the matter is we've all been counted out. We've been counted out by loved ones. We've been counted out by bosses. We've been counted out by colleagues, by friends, by enemies. Hell, we've been counted out by ourselves. We've all reached a point in time where we've looked ourselves in the mirror and we questioned what we saw. We wondered whether or not Tomorrow was gonna to shine brightly down upon us when we looked up at the sunshine. We wondered whether it was meant for us or not. And I think about a lot of things. I think about the Tamron Halls of the world. But you know something? I think about a plethora of other people. I think about Steve Jobs. I think about Michael Bloomberg, a billionaire. I think about Robert Downey Jr. I think about Sylvester Stallone. I think about Oprah Winfrey. You know who I think about most? Myself. They counted me out, y'all. Yeah, they did. You know, when I think about this podcast, No Mercy, I've got two people that work on this podcast with me. They don't know I'm about to talk about them. They don't know I'm about to mention them. But I love them like brothers. Because they don't know what it meant to me to have them there for me. Talk about my man Terry Fox. Talk about my man Rashawn McDonald. You know, when I got left let go by ESPN over a contract dispute more than a decade ago, I remember somebody in my ear saying, it ain't over. It's just beginning for you. You have no idea where your potential lies and what lies ahead for you. You're stuck in this one lane. You're gravitating towards that. You can't see anything else. It's all black to you. As in dark. There doesn't appear to be a light at the end of the tunnel. But it ain't so. You're going from television. Radio's your future. Podcasts are your future. And guess what? Once you start doing their things, once you start doing those things, excuse me, everything else is going to fall in line. Because the power of your voice is going to emanate and project through that microphone that it's going to make people say, who the hell is that again? Who's that dude? Is that the same dude that was on ESPN? Listen to that, brother. Terry Fox kept saying that. Before him, there was a guy by the name of Rashawn McDonald. Now, I'm not some corny dude that, you know, I might get loud and all that other stuff, but you know, now I'm not the most emotional dude in the Royal. You won't see me shedding tears and being sobbed and emotional like I'm on some soap opera, even though I love soap operas. And I got a role presently on General Hospital. My character's name is Brick. I'm a surveillance expert for the mob. I ain't some soft dude doing love scenes, although I would not mind. I would not mind. But I'm not some dude getting all nostalgic and emotional and all of this other stuff. But my man, Rashawn McDonald, was calling me a star before I knew I was one. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait wait, wait, a minute. We ain't talking just about television. We talking just about podcasts. We talk about just, not just radio, Stephen A. Not just Stephen A. Not just radio. Talk about everything. Talk about everything, my brother. Nothing's gonna stop you. And this is at a time when I was let go. When I was living off my savings, I didn't have a pot to piss in. I was ex- I was an expectant father, and I wondered whether or not I'd even survive. I'd even be in this business, and it is more than a decade later, 13 years to be exact, and I'm number one, number one sports morning show in America for 11 consecutive years in counting. Don't count me out! I counted myself out, so once upon a time, I couldn't blame anybody for counting me out. But it's fair to say, that has changed. It's a new day, damn it. And I believe I am here to stay. I should have done my history though. Should have studied my history. Because over the course of that period of time, I could have reflected on some great, great stories over the years. Where people were counted out. And think about what they became. Ever heard of Steve Jobs? He changed all our lives. Inventions from the iPod, iMac, iBook, iPad, iPhone. Kicked to the curb, kicked out of Apple. The company he founded in his garage. What did he do next? He bet on himself. Took $12 million of his own money to start the computer company called Next. 11 years later. In the year 1996, Apple bought the next operating system for $429 million and brought jobs back because the company was now failing. Sounds familiar? No, ESPN wasn't failing. Those four, that four-letter brand is a monster. It's the monolith. It's not, they, they clearly were not failing even when I was gone, but they brought me back for a reason because they knew I'd help them win. And I've proven that. What happened to jobs next? Meaning his company next? He worked to turn the company around via the new products and an investment from Apple's main rival, Microsoft. Do you know what Apple's evaluation is right now? $1 trillion. A trillion dollars! That's because of Steve Jobs. Ever heard of Michael Bloomberg? I watch Bloomberg News all the time. It's one of the ways I follow my money, the little bit of money I make. I'm lying. I make a little bit more than a little bit. But you get to my drift. Michael Bloomberg's a billionaire. He's the former mayor of New York City. By the way, had he won the Democratic nomination, I would have voted for him. I would have voted for him over Biden. To win a Democratic nomination, I would have voted for him over uh, over Kamala Harris. I would have voted for him instead. I would have voted for him ahead of any Democrat, but he just didn't have the pizzazz. He can get the job done if he was in office, but he didn't have the moxie, the scissor, the pizzazz, the charisma to get himself the nomination. So he could go up against a Republican and win. But guess what? He's still on top of the world now. For 15 years, he worked at Wall Street, investment firm, firm, the Solomon Brothers. Solomon Brothers. Even getting so high as a partner in the firm. When the company restructured, Bloomberg was cast out and paid a large severance just to go away. Get the hell out of here. We don't need your ass. That's what they were saying to him. He took the severance package, co founded the Michael Bloomberg LP in 1981. The company, as we speak, has revenues of over $10 billion a year. As of June, this past June, 2022, Forbes ranked Bloomberg the 16th richest person on the planet Earth. Don't forget, he was the mayor of New York City for 12 years. From 2002 to 2013 to be exact. What about Robert Downey Jr.? Heard that name? Brothers of Hollywood. Star had addictions that he couldn't beat. Once upon a time, he became Hollywood's biggest pariah. Some would argue in 1992, he was nominated for an Oscar for playing Charlie Chaplin in 97. He was so far gone. He was arrested for breaking into a neighbor's house for sleeping in their bed. After missing a mandatory drug test, he was ordered to six for six months in a county jail. A county jail, y'all. I don't know if y'all know how nasty a county jail is. Try it out one time. This is nasty. It's nasty. It makes some subway alleys look like a posh hotel. It's nasty. Radioactive. And forced to try and jumpstart his career for 10 years with smaller roles. I think then after director, what is it? John Favreau? For tooth and nail for him to become the Marvel character of Iron Man, he became bigger than ever again. The Avenger and Iron Man movies. Ladies and gentlemen, they've grossed over $8 billion from the neighbor's couch to Hollywood royalty. What about Sylvester Stallone? Heard that name? Rocky Balboa. Did you know that once upon a time he was so poor he sold his own dog for $25 just so he could buy groceries? He had nothing, but he bet on himself, wrote the scripts for Rocky, and was offered $125,000. But he insisted he play Rocky. Studio said, hell no. And then he looked funny and talked funny. They wanted a real star. So he walked. Weeks later, the studio offered him $250,000 for the script. He still refused. They upped it to $350,000. He still said no even though he had no money. He had to be in that movie. He insisted. So the studio finally agreed to, but they only agreed to pay him only $35,000 for the script. And they let him be a star. So instead of the $350,000, they knocked it down 10 times to $35,000 if he wanted to be the star of the movie. The rest is history. Two Oscars later, Sly Stallone is a megastar. By the way, He bought his dog back for $15,000. Same dog he sold. Oprah Winfrey, ever heard of her? Let's not forget, probably the biggest name of them all, the queen of daytime herself. You don't think she was counted out? Seven months into co-anchoring a Baltimore news station, Oprah was given her pink slip and told by a producer she was
0: unfit
2: for television. Too emotional. Did she give up? You know better. Left her left for a role hosting a daytime show in Chicago. People are talking. The show became a hit. And after eight years, eventually became the Oprah Winfrey show, which aired for 25 seasons. According to Forbes. She's worth three billion. The world is filled with stories of people who didn't give up. Of people who didn't find, who refused, rather, to give up. Who insisted. Don't count them out. They're going to make it happen. And every time you see a story like that, it inspires you to say, really? That's what you're going to do? You're going to give up? Especially if you in the United States of America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, capitalism, op- the land of opportunity. This is what they say, right? This podcast heard worldwide, so I ain't about to sit up there and just preach about American values. They matter to me because that's where I'm at. But I'll be damned if I'm going to diminish anybody else's viewpoint, anybody else's vantage point. Because guess what? If you're a human being, if you got blood sifting through your veins, if you got a mind, if you got a heart, if you got ambition and the physical energy to exert yourself and push yourself and do everything you can to maximize your potential, there's something in you that's telling you don't count me out. There's something in you that's telling everybody else, don't count me out. And that's what it's all about. This podcast ain't just about interviewing interesting people. It's about touching on interesting subjects that transcend genres, sports, news, politics, pop culture, and entertainment. The list goes on and on. Tell me one subject, one genre. One job, one career aspiration, anything where being counted out by yourself or others does not apply. It applies everywhere. Because people everywhere. Have those kind of feelings, those emotional maladies that are bringing them down and keeping them down and preventing them from rising up and ascending. To pursue their dreams and their goals. I'm on a mission to make a difference. If I'm gonna do that, guess what? It starts with me. It starts with me telling you my story piece by piece along the way while doing this podcast, articulating my thoughts, my passions, my fears, my trials and tribulations, my struggles before ultimately getting to that promised land I defined for myself, not letting anyone else define for me. That's what this podcast is about. That's why I love today's theme, Don't Count Me Out. And that's why my next guest is so important to talk to. A woman who has seen so much adversity in so many ways, but continues not only to not give up, but to shine, pivot, Educating herself and having a better second act than the one before. She is the wonderful Tamron Hall. You know that name. She might be the next Oprah. Y'all better pay attention. She's up next with your boy, Stephen A., right here on No Mercy in a minute.
3: the moment of a lifetime uh-huh. the clock's sticking like my lifeline until i flatline i push it to the red line who gonna stop me high who gonna stop me high
2: i am thrilled to be speaking with my next guest to put it molly she is an individual of first to say the least she was the first black woman to co-anchor on the morning show today won her first emmy in 2020 for a daytime program And she had her first child at the age of 48. She is a journalist extraordinaire, an author extraordinaire, a philanthropist with the biggest heart in the world, with 30 years of experience in the world of television. The one, the only, the incomparable, Miss Tamron Hall. Mrs. Tamron Hall, how are you? How's everything going, Tamron?
1: (laughs) Everything is great. And it's even better. I'm talking to you.
2: Oh, please. I always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're doing your thing, to say the least, Put into words where you believe you are at this point in time in your career, in your life. How are you feeling about you?
1: I feel good. Every day I'm hustling.
2: <laughs> <But> <laughs> I like <laughs> I that. I, feel, I like that.
1: It's true. I feel good. But every day I'm hustling.
2: You know, when I wanted to when I thought about sitting down and talking to you, so much is known about your career, uh, your life. You've told a lot of folks about your life. But As you sit here today, what when you reflect on all that you have accomplished, did you ever see this? Did this this ever occur to you that you would be able to achieve all that you've achieved?
1: No, because I could not have imagined, like, for example, in 62 years that the Today Show would not have had a Black host, right? Mm -hmm. I could never have imagined me being the first because, you know, we're around the same age we grew up with a lot of firsts in our industry and we don't ever imagine we will still be amongst those. So that says so much about the industry and what still needs to be done that by the time you and I got into our professions, we were still making first, you know, because I think about the first 1930s, 1920s, not That's right. 2007 or 2009 being the first. So I could never have imagined it. I I, this was my only plan. I didn't have a backup plan, meaning I always wanted to be a journalist. When I was a kid growing up, I think it went from, you know, wanting to be Johnny Carson because that's what we would see on TV and then wanting to be Arsenio Hall to, I guess, in some Mm. ways, wanting to be Oprah, whatever was in front of me that represented this kind of connection I always feel. I always felt that I had with people, and that I love people. I love being around people. I love hosting dinner parties, small, intimate ones, and learning, like you said, the layers to somebody's story, their origin. So I knew it would be in this world, but I could never have imagined this version.
2: Did you believe that when, you know when you arrived at the Today Show? Was that your dream job? Was oh, that yeah. was that what you were targeting, what you was
0: aiming for? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I was definitely. I remember um, about a year before I joined. MSNBC and NBC. I'd taken my mom to see the first version of The Color Purple when it got to Broadway. And we okay. were walking around New York and my mom, we walked by Rockefeller Center and she pointed to the building. She said, next year you're going to be working here. And I said, there's no way. Mm. And we took a picture and, and I actually had a camera that did, remember the ones that did the timestamp on the photos? That's how long ago this was. Yep. Like that, yep. The <laughs> date on there. And sure enough, right. um, When I got called by Steve Kappas, a Temple University grad, who was then the president of of NBC News, to come and meet him, I found that picture. I walked into his office with the picture in my hand, and it was the exact day to the letter, one year later, that my Mm. mom was pointing. And this was a picture that sat on my desk for many, many years that I was there, pointing to the sign saying, you're going to work here. And so that was the goal. Mm. You know, my mom is Southern. She believes you can manifest things. Every time something happens, my mom goes, I prayed about it last night. As if she just has the direct line that no one else has. And so, (laughs) you know, it was a part of her dream for me, which is important. And I see now through the lens of being a parent with a child. So she dreamt it for me. She wanted it for me and I wanted it for me. And then there I was with this dream job.
2: You know, we'll get you brought up Temple. You're on the board of trustees there. And we'll get into that a little bit later in this interview. But I want to stay with today for a second here. You found yourself once you once you left that job, you found yourself unemployed for the first time since you were 14 years old. That's that's what I read. I mean, what was that like for you? And, and, And take us back as you reflect on that experience why you ended up walking away and how you felt about it and what you think is ultimately did what you think it ultimately did for you in your life moving forward yeah. beyond that.
1: Well, I've worked since 14. My first job was Toys R Us. I've never not had a job. I've never Mm -hmm. not had a paycheck with my own name and my own social security coming in. I've worked at a jewelry store where the gun, the Magnum, the logo was Magnum Jewelers. And every holiday, we would get our windows smashed. And people talk about all the robbings now. Try being in 1998, Philadelphia, and they're crashing the window to snatch Mm. the jewelry. I've worked uh, in odd office jobs, I've worked as much as you can imagine it would take to pay for college yourself. You know, I had some loans, I had Pell Grant, Hugh Grant, Lou Grant, I tell everybody, but I, yeah, I know, you know, Same but I work. I worked, I worked. Oh. I, you know, I went to class mm-hmm. the very early classes so that I could be off by one o'clock so that I could work from two until six or seven, um, to pay my bills on my own. So I'd never been without a job. It was terrifying. I was 46, 47 years old, uh, a gut punch. I'd never made multiple millions of dollars in our industry, uh, even though I can say now I knew I had earned and deserved that. I was always looking at right. people coming in after me who were making much more, and me always climbing. You know, I was always climbing. So mm-hmm. I, I wasn't leaving with, as they refer to as, you know, F money, where you can walk out the door and say, I got money and I didn't have that. Yes. But I wasn't broke. But you weren't broke. But more than money, I wanted my dignity. You know, I've been in this business a long time. And you know this better than anyone. People will keep moving the goalposts until it's invisible. And so that's Mm. the situation I was in. So I've been working my entire life. Now I'm in an apartment I remember my mother calling me saying, "Will we still have your room here. And I'm like, that is not the option. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, thank you, mama, but I'm not <laughs> right. moving into right. my room with my new edition poster <laughs> on the wall. That's not how I pictured it turning out. So, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you. that I was like you. nauseating. I was not married. I didn't have a child. So all of the things I thought I was supposed to have at this point were not there. And I was unemployed and through no real fault of my own. So it's a mm-hmm. gut punch, you know, you start looking at your bank account and you're like, okay, I have some money, but how long can this last? And then the offers um, right. that I started to get early on did not match the public response, right? So I'm, I've am i left the show and people are like, wait a minute. So it's clear that people had have, have respect uh, for what I did and reverence for what I did and wanted to see me on TV, but mm-hmm. I was getting essentially internship offers, right? And if I were an intern, that would be good, yeah. but I was a you know, award-winning journalist uh, who'd been doing it for 20 plus years. So it was, it was, you know, it's funny you asked me, it was, I don't know the difference in being frightened or scared. Ah, that sounds so crazy coming out of my mouth next I'm processing it with you. But I wasn't worried. I know that sounds mm. weird. I was, I I felt like I was in quicksand, but it wasn't going to sink me. And that's the first, and it's so hard for me, mm. Stephen, to, to describe it, but you know, you, you, you know, the feeling it's a gut punch, but I didn't feel it was the end. Something kept telling me, this is not the end. This is not the end.
2: In 2009, when, and I'll share this with you, when ESPN decided to let yeah. me go, I, it was a gut punch. I was devastated, but I was scared to death because I had just had. My daughter, my oldest daughter, Samantha, yeah. I was scared to death because I was a black man. And I'm saying, OK, these opportunities don't come every day. Nothing is yeah. guaranteed. You got to grind. You got to scratch. You got to claw. And no one, and I mean no one, Tamron, wanted me in television. Yeah. They didn't want to touch me yeah. at all. And I didn't know why. I could have believed it, but I was scared to death. But it taught me a lot. And it taught yeah. me that I didn't know the business the way I thought I knew the business. Right. And that... And that really fueled me because I said, OK, they got me here because I'm at a disadvantage because I was mm-hmm. thinking popularity is people screaming your name in the streets. It ain't ratings. It ain't revenue. You're not yeah, paying attention yeah. to it. Yeah. So that's what I learned from my experience. What mm-hmm. did you learn mm-hmm. from your experience?
1: I learned to be strategic. So to your point, the business aspect of it, we are not raised as journalists to think of ourselves as a brand That's right. and certainly not black journalists, right? Cause mm. we had a few had brands, but that wasn't, you know, the priority the priority was to get the job, get the big gig and and hold it down for some significant period of time. I remember the next morning after my departure and I was not allowed to say goodbye to the audience. I thought I'm going to use my weapon everyone talks about my clothes. I always give away my clothes every year, but now I'm going to give away everything I've ever worn, And I'm going to use this social media that I hadn't really leaned into to tell everybody. And so the video was shot by my friend, Sylvia Christian from Chicago. She was there with me. She put it on. I had big bags of clothes and I'm like, I'm now thinking strategically because it's not going to be my goodbye. So what's my weapon? They can't silence me. It's my social media. I own it because I didn't. I never linked my social media to NBC. So it's my at Tamron Hall. It's mine. So that's about big lesson, ownership. And then how am I going to use my weapon? What are your weapons? Tina Knowles said that when she used to dress Destiny Child, she picked out their outfits based on their best body part. She said, you know, Kelly had the legs, Beyonce had the tummy. So I was like, my weapon. People always ask about my clothes. I'm going to use this as a weapon for good and donating clothes. But also you want to know my story? Here it is. So I guess it was a form of clickbait because I wanted to not be silent. So I think the biggest lesson I've learned um, to your point about the business side of it, um, it's being a businesswoman. And you can be a journalist, but I will tell anybody in any industry, if you're not thinking like a business person, I own Tamron Hall. So if my partner benefits from me rising, great. But at the end of the day, I'm a product. I have to recognize that. And I will take my product somewhere else. But That's what that was the click for me. I was like, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. I am a brand. And now let me think like a brand. And to your point, study the industry, study syndicated TV. Mm -hmm. How does that work? How is money made in syndicated TV? And that's what I started to do. Mm -hmm. I started to think of myself that way.
2: And I tell you something, too. I get where you're coming from, because I was right there and I'm saying to myself, (laughs) but the the fearful, the Mm -hmm. fearful part was blackness. Yeah. Because the rules are different for us than it is for others. And that's just a fact. Doesn't mean it can't be overcome. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean the obstacles can't be knocked, through, knocked mm-hmm. down and run over. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you're, I'm thinking about myself as a black man. And I'm saying to you, as a black woman, mm-hmm. acknowledging and later admitting that, you know what? They, they could slice, slice it any way they want to. I was fired. Yeah. Was, race, was race a part in any fear that you had at all?
1: Um, not in my f- fear, right? Because I had known, here's the deal. It was always a part of the storyline. Again, mm. 62 years of the Today Show, I was the first mm. Black woman. Um, Prior mm. to Joanne Reed and Don Lemon, none of the cable news shows were anchored by people of color, even mm. though more people of color watch certain networks, right? And so- it was never off the table. I always knew it was on the table. When I started, um, Stephen, I got hired like the week that uh, Don Iamis was let go. The first article I read on one of the blogs, this is when blogs were t- were taking yeah. over 2008. Someone yeah. called me Token Hall. Wow. And not knowing. And the Clearly not knowing your damn resume. Right. Well, not knowing your resume. And, and the allegation that the writer uh, had presented was that NBC had hired me because of the pressure they'd received after Don Imus. Although I'd been hired before, they didn't even know the storyline. I was hired well before his scandal. We just couldn't announce it because I was under contract in local news. So now you've taken Don Imus, linked him to me and made me a token. So when I was let go, it wasn't as if I had to think about race. It was always on the table. It was on the table Mm -hmm. with my friend Ann Curry. It was never off the table. So the fear of not being let in the room was always a constant. You know, I'd already been in the room where someone told me I wasn't relatable to the audience. And I knew what she meant by that. Because in her mind, what was relatable was a white woman with children who suburban middle America would see as affable, not me. Even though I said, and I remember very vividly saying, do you know the two most popular women in the history of morning TV, Oprah Winfrey and Robin Roberts, two black women without children. That's right. And now you're going to tell me yeah. that the the blueprint is a fictitious, you know, on air affable mom of four um, that happens to be white. So it, it didn't I didn't have a rush of race because it was never off the table. It was always ever present. Every move I made in that industry, in this industry.
2: You brought up Oprah. You brought up Robin Roberts. Robin Roberts is on Good Morning Mm -hmm. America. Oprah's not doing the Oprah Winfrey show anymore, but that's primarily because she owns a (laughs) network. She's doing she is still doing big things. And so are you winning daytime Mm -hmm. Emmys, hosting your own show right now. What has that experience been like for you and how has that differed from everything you've already done? or you did before. I'm sorry.
1: It's validating. I can't lie. You know, the first year I won the Emmy for a daytime talk show host, um, it was in COVID. So there I was at home in the shower and someone called me and they were like, you won. I'm like, won what? They're like, "Emmy!" I'm like, shut up. Get the hell out of here. (laughs) I was like, my hair was all natural. My mom, I started screaming. They're like, what happened? I'm like, they said I won it. Listen, they said I won an Emmy. That's how I didn't even know I'd won the Emmy. And the second uh, Emmy that I just won this past summer to be on stage and receive that, you know, it wasn't a... Uh, look at me now, but it was a look at me now. Mm -hmm. You know, look at me now. You didn't see me in the office. You didn't see what I had to offer, but look at me now. And I don't say that with malice. I say that to remind these executives and these people who pick the winning horses that you have to expand what you see. And that's why I took this role with the National Association of Broadcasters. We have a foundation where we can reach people like you and I who Networks didn't always see. We had to excel at such a high level that it was undeniable, right? And meanwhile, there were mediocre people who are fine enough, right. who got all of the resources to win the race. And that happens. Life is not fair, and I right. don't expect it to be. That said, it should be a reminder to any industry. You know, it's it's, it's, it's like Bob Marley's song, The Cornerstone. Mm-hmm. You just don't know what your cornerstone is going to be. So it's validating, but I don't say that in a way of, oh, wow, look at me now because I have so much work to do. I want to continue. I want the show to win Emmys. I want to be on many, many seasons. So I'm not at the dunk stage of this, but I am at the proud point where I'm, I'm in the game. I'm in the game. And I hope they see that.
2: I appreciate you bringing up the issue of fairness because my buddy Jeff Brown always says fear is a place where they judge pigs. It doesn't exist, particularly when it it comes to us. But I also appreciate you bringing up the point about knowing your business and really elevating your level of play, not standing still, not being stagnant in any way. And I bring that up because I've watched every chance I get. I watch your show and I watch it in in full disclosure to you because I consider you to be an exception journalist, an exceptional interviewer, and I watch you conduct interviews the way you ask questions, the way you make people feel comfortable to talk with you about some of the most personal <laughs> matters imaginable, okay? You recently did it with a gospel singer for crying out loud when she you had a pastor on the air with her. I was watching that, okay? I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at all of these things, and I guess the question for me comes... Comes from a place where I'm asking, do you realize the impact that you're having on others now? Mm. Before you might have been doing it and you didn't mind helping others because that's never been your issue, but in the same breath, you were doing it to also showcase what you brought to the table. I don't think you have to worry about that anymore. Now is your mindset of, okay, let me show y'all how this is done, let's help others. On the come up, how much do do. you think about that as you are on the air right now? It's
1: hugely important, you know, and it's not about giving your platform because you and I are not from the giving school. We are. You earn it. You get a seat at the table. And that's something that I always admired about you. And that's why you were such a phenomenal guest on our show when you came on. You know, I am from the earn school of thought. And for me to be able to have this show. To we just had Whoopi Goldberg on. It's Whoopi E. Got Goldberg, right? But it took her yes. 11 years to get this movie made about Emmett Till's mother and the fight for justice. By yes. the way, brilliant film. You know, I could never have imagined that I have a show where I can look at my the show Rana uh, rundown and I say, giving her the whole show. You can talk about it as long as she wants to, right? Because this is an important <laughs> conversation. I, yeah. you know, I I, I feel that. Now I have the reins. I can say, let's do this show. Let's not do this show. We did a show on banned books. And George M. Johnson, who has the number three most banned book, a young man of color, a young person of color, excuse me, a young person of color who is telling his story of growing up, learning about who he is through the lens of 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 sexuality and gender and who you see it's mm. a beautiful story and it's a banned book i kicked off my show with him one of the highest rated shows and mm. then interviewed two women who want to ban books one actually stole a book from a private library in an attempt and she attempted to justify it. i'm not being a busybody mm. but ma'am respectfully you st- you stole this is public it's called the public you library you know you stole and so we have That's guests right. on where well, I'm very honest with them. I do not see this in the same lens you see this, but I'm going to give you a chance to explain how you feel. Um, whether I agree with you or not, I want you to have the time and the space and the grace to speak your piece, to tell your story. The best of who I am is when I've been able to listen, and learn from the experience of other people, and that's what the show is. That's why I say it's like a brunch, two mimosas in. The people you don't like are gone, and you really can sit down and talk. You can, we can have a conversation. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's a, it's an important tool. It's an important space. Largely, daytime is still watched by women. Many of those women are women of color, mm-hmm. and so I never forget about the audience, and I always put the audience first, and I always put before me the guest, and I think that's why. Um, Thank you very much for the compliment about the interview style. I pray every day when I walk out, I say, God, allow me to communicate. Allow me to put the guests first. Allow their words to matter more than mine. And that's my daily prayer.
2: Mm -hmm. What's your pressure like from the standpoint of Do you go on the air every day? Of course, we always think about ratings and revenue because the bottom line is you ain't generate ratings and revenue. We ain't gonna have a show. They can tell (laughs) us anything they want to. That's what they do to us. Okay, we understand this. But is the pressure? Does the pressure emanate from that strictly? Does the pressure emanate from the fact that you are a woman Mm -hmm. and there are women out there that feel that there are issues you should be tackling or does it? Uh, Or has it evolved to a point where there's so many things going on in our society right now? LGBTQ issues, the Me Too movement, lives matter, whether it's black lives or white lives matter, <laughs> whatever the case may be. I bring, I bring up white lives okay, matter because Kanye. of Mr. Kanye West. I mean, there's something that's going on all the time. Where does that pressure lie when it comes to Taryn Hall?
1: It doesn't affect me. I mean, we're live three okay. days a week. We tape two days a week. So five shows a week. Um, we stay mm. topical at the top of the show. The biggest pressure is I have 250 employees employees. employees, different personalities, Mm. different temperament, still in a global pandemic. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Did most of the season two, uh, season three and two from home. So it's the pressure Mm -hmm. of keeping my team competitive, keeping them from feeling uh, that the desire to be competitive doesn't mean it's critical. You know, it it's I think if I watched that Michael Jordan special, uh, remember the, the one they just did on the Bulls a couple of years yes, ago. Last dance. You know, last dance. When you mm-hmm. operate at a high competitiveness, you have to be careful on how it's received, right? I don't right. want people to be demoralized, but I also want them to compete. I ran track my whole life. So it's right. inspiring without uh, being too tough, like they said Jordan was. But well, compete
2: was, and generate results. And generate, generate results, Tamron. Right.
1: And so sometimes I've had to say, talk about the pressure. You know, I've had to say to people, if I were a white man saying exactly this, how would you feel? But for me, mm-hmm. you've never been told, you know, let's get out there and do better by a woman. Let's get out there and do better by a black woman. So now mm-hmm. it's scary. And so one of the things I tell my team I don't ever want to hear someone say they are afraid to speak up. There's no reason for that because for so long, I would hear that. Oh, the producer was afraid to speak up. Why am I scary? I worked yeah. in newsrooms where I yeah. saw white dudes throw typewriters across the room. I mean, nobody was afraid. How about that? You
2: know? How about right? that? Exactly. And I'm sitting
1: here saying in a calm voice, guys, we have to do better. The audience deserves more. The guests deserve more. So we have to, until those words come out of my mouth, level up on every single thing, the graphics, the intro, the clips, all of it, the research. I want Stephen A., when he comes on, to know I've read his story. I don't want to start off with a question that's so obvious that everyone has asked him 500 times. right? right? And me saying that should be inspiring. But early on, season one, there were people who were like, oh, I'm scared. Because they never had a Black woman coach them.
3: This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high?
2: Let me transition real quick before I get it cuz I want to get into your your mystery novel, but before mm. I do that, you are a member of the board of trustees at Temple University. I am. You actually replaced Bill Cosby,
1: who spoke at my graduation. What was that like?
2: Well, actually, what was I'm, that like and what does that mean to you?
1: Well, I met Bill Cosby at the age of 17. Um mm. and I vividly remember him having a cigar and it wafting in my face. Uh mm. but uh showing great reverence for Bill Cosby as everyone did in 1987. Yes. Um yes. I was asked to replace him after he was convicted and Well, actually it was before he was even convicted and I accept it because for one reason, when I walked through the doors of that great university, as I already said, I walked in with a million student loans and debt. And now that I could have a seat at the table and represent not as a celebrity, but as the kid who went 1,528 miles door to door, like so many of the students at that school, that's why I accept it. I didn't accept it so that I could say, oh, wow, I people thought that I accepted it for every kid in there on a Pell Grant student loan whose mama and daddy and uncle and aunts are all rooting for them and they're pitching money together, all the things that happened to me. So it was surreal to be on my first board of trustee meeting and look out at that cobblestone street that I had just enough money to buy a slice of pizza many days. And then to the mm. point where the guy who ran the truck was so sweet, he would give me <laughs> slices because he knew right. that day was right. walking like because I was broke. And then I'd go <laughs> through the <laughs> right. truck with that's the Chinese right. family and they'd give me extra shrimp fried rice because they got to know me. right? Wow. So that's why I took that position because as you said, life is not fair. And any chance I have to level the playing field so that the next Stephen A, the next Tamron Hall can be in the room, I'm going to do it. And so my voice being there, I think the youngest person on the board of trustees was very important to me. But yeah, I met Bill Cosby uh, as a kid. Um, I met him and interviewed him many, many times. I presented him with awards. Um, And it was heartbreaking, um, disappointing, surreal. But that said... And I know people don't like to hear this. I still watch the Cosby show. And I will. Oh, you ain't going to stop. I will. We ain't going to stop, stop watching the, Cosby. Watch hey, the listen,
2: Cosby show. Hey, listen. Hey, listen. I listen to R. Kelly's music. I'll never support him. Yeah. And he belongs under the yeah. damn jail yeah. as far Absolutely. as I'm concerned. But but, but, but but, those records that I brought. I believe <laughs> that I, I Can rather, Fly is a beautiful for, song. For, it's, it's a an beautiful inspiring song. Okay? It's an
1: inspiring song. Absolutely. And many, you know, churches and people sang it because of its inspirational note. And one of the things with artistry, and we're having this more nuanced conversation about it now, is being able to separate the two. I hosted a panel with um, some of the biggest museums here in the city of New York, and a couple of them have a policy. They will not take the art down Mm. because you would rid us of some of the greatest art ever created if you started to dissect, you know, everything that this person did wrong yes. and convictions and all these other things. Mm-hmm. So I still watch a Cosby show because I grew up and that was the first black family. They were not mm-hmm. like my black family, but it was right. an aspirational black family.
2: Well listen, you were also friends with Prince, if I remember I remember correctly, I know I, I'm yeah. sorry to bring that up, but he was such okay. a wonderful, phenomenal yeah. artist, uh, you know, and, and highly intelligent dude. Yeah. Heard he spoke to and I heard you I heard he critiqued your fashion every morning. Isn't <laughs> he, that true? That is <laughs> Is that, is that true? true? Is, is that, that true? This is your gospel. You're gonna step in You were critiquing my fashion, you know. He so was, he was a fly. friend that would call he you about your fashion. Fly. I'm like, well, I thought it was you, Tarrant. I thought it was you. Yeah. It turns out it was him that helped you out there.
1: <laughs> no, he is uh, is I say is because it's so crazy, but yeah. um yeah, it's one of those life-changing someone asked me. What was a surreal moment that I had with a celebrity and it was the very first time he picked me up and I remember pulled up to my home and there was a black car out front and I opened the door and there he's sitting there and it was just, it blew my mind in so many ways, as you can imagine. But then I got to know the person and the person was as complex and amazing and as beautiful and as incredible as you can imagine. A genius would be. That is a genius.
2: He was definitely a genius. I remember when Chris Rock was joking around with one of his comedy skits. He said, Everybody compare Michael Jackson and Prince. Prince won. That's what he said. Prince yeah, won. Yeah, yeah. But no, I'm like, Okay, listen. I, I, okay, i us hey, not get I, carried I away. I'm not getting carried away, but it, it's too different. But I got to no, tell you, it's a tough one. I, it's a tough one, Tamron. Yeah, Prince and Michael Jackson. Yeah, Prince and Tamron. Steven I mean, Prince and, Michael,
1: Prince and Michael Jackson. Steven. We,
2: yes. A. Smith. Yes.
1: Okay, here's the deal. Yes. Okay. Prince is uh uh one of the Mount Rushmores of my life, right? Okay, I, I yes. probably wouldn't be talking to you because he was the one who said, Why are you still waiting on them? You need to do it yourself. Uh he's in the Mount Rushmores of my yes. life for sure. Yes. That said, mm-hmm. um, Michael Jackson okay. is the greatest entertainer to walk the earth. When the aliens yeah. come down, they will ask about Michael Jackson. Yeah. They will. It just, yeah. it just is. I'm just saying
2: it's close. <laughs> That's all I'm saying, Terry. It's close between Michael Jackson and Prince. Right. It's close. It's not a landslide. It's not a landslide. It's Michael Prince Jackson and Prince. It's Michael Jackson and Prince right and everyone. Now
0: I would say. <laughs> I
1: got you. I got you. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's it's a it's like comparing. I don't like when they do the rankings of athletes like the greatest center of all time or the greatest. World. I don't Can like to. those rankings because it's not apples to apples these you know two people is? brought that, such that, different that, energy that, that,
2: that that's the Dallas Cowboys fan of you i sure you wouldn't like Rankins. sure you wouldn't like you know, rankings Tamra that's what out. that's about
1: <laughs> Channing Crowder they just asked me how I was talking to some people and they said how could you be a Dallas Cowboy fan I, I
2: understand it why would you I, do that to yourself
1: well okay again modern NFL football yes would not exist how oh, you are boy. a businessman. You talk about stats. Oh, you goodness. talk about business all the time. You should love the Dallas Cowboys simply because he studied the business. Jerry Jones studied the business but, and created the modern, wait, the modern the You're modern blueprint me. on how to turn an NFL team into a money-making oh franchise. Oh
2: my lord! I, come
1: on, listen. listen. Who he's else phenomenal. Would have listen,
2: of- he's a phenomenal businessman, a phenomenal marketer. I got it. Yes. Did, you, did you see me flying on a private jet, on a private helicopter? Did you see that? <laughs> I mean, it was it was nice. And I've been invited to the yacht too, Tamron. I've been invited to the yacht. okay, well, okay you know, about <laughs> me? I'm not even I, I, talking I, about Jerry. i, I am invited to the yacht. I got I got invited to the yacht. I'll tell him you want to come. I'll tell him you want to come you. because okay. because you deserve. <laughs> I, I don't know about me. I don't know if I'm going to show up. I might get contaminated by the Cowboy fans <laughs> that get on my nerves. Listen, Terry. You
1: know what? You love the Cowboys. And I, I know you. I can't stand
2: the fans. It's I can't not stand true. Cow- Cowboy fans. Oh, yes, that is true. One in 15 seasons. Season ends in January at 7 o'clock. By 7.15, y'all are like, you no, know we're going to win the Super Bowl next year, right? It
1: just drives me
2: nuts. I can't take it. I just can't take a oh, Cowboy okay. I'm fan. I'm so
1: sorry. All of us, we can't all be Aaron Rodgers. Sorry. Yeah, that, that's right.
2: That's right. Let me transition. <laughs> I, that's right. Exactly. See, there you go. But he hasn't won See, since, since like 2010. Like he hasn't, know, that was a real low blow. You got me there. You got me there, right? <laughs> let me let me transition, Taryn, uh, because I want to talk about your mystery novel. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people want to, I want people to know about this. Okay. The Wicked Watch, and you currently host a TV series. Someone they knew. Mm-hmm. You said yeah um you've said the motivation was doing part to the unfortunate passing mm-hmm. of your sister mm-hmm. in 2014. Talk to my audience about yeah. that for a second.
1: Yeah, no, I um my sister. For years, I did not talk about the death of my sister because it is an unsolved uh, case, but I knew it also involved a history of being. Um, abused. And one day, Stephen, I was here, I just moved to New York and I was asked to host an event for an organization called Day One, which it was created to teach young people that dating and love doesn't have to hurt. I was just looking before I came in and I was looking at Blueface, the, this popular rapper and his girlfriend. And they've had this very volatile public relationship that people have been following on social media. He's a young hip hop star. She's a young TV personality. I think also a hip hop star. I don't know their music, but I know their story because it pops up in my timeline. They have this public violent, publicly violent relationship. And so the group that I had um, gone to visit that your, their goal was to, to, to end the belief that love has to hurt or crazy and love is a good thing, right? It's an ongoing battle to teach people how to love healthy. Anyway, I'm at this event and there were young people, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, telling the most horrifying stories of being beaten, um, being uh, the victims of domestic violence in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And I finally found the courage through them to tell my sister's story of being in Chicago and being in the home while my sister was abused by uh, her then boyfriend and being mad at my sister, not knowing and not having the coping skills to be there for her. I said, why can't you just leave him? What are you thinking? And then when she got back with him, kicking her out of my house, which I now know. And I, and I tell this story and every time it's like, my soul dissolves because I did not understand her pain. I did not know how to communicate with her. So over the years, I've you know, worked with survivors of domestic violence, October's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And then I had an opportunity to do uh, a show, Deadline Crime, to talk with family members of unsolved cases, family members who were seeking justice, family members who did not want their loved ones just to be a headline. And that began this Career, if you will, of covering um, stories from the perspective of family members—someone they knew—is the show that I have on Court TV. Which I always tell people: at some point, you know, you 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 have to wonder who is in your space, right? Hopefully yeah, none of yeah. us who are victims of crime, but we could all be. And in most cases, it is someone that you know. And so this case takes a this this show takes a very unique look at crime from the prism of people who are victims of someone that they either trusted, that they love, that was in their life, that they saw as safe until. It became unsafe, and the book, as the Wicked Watch, I it's uh, a novel. Jordan Manning, Michael Jordan, Peyton Manning is where I got the name, there and it follows a young reporter as she seeks justice, inspired by my life. And it talks about what it's like to be a black woman in the newsroom. But more important, it talks about what does it feel like for a reporter who wants to see justice in a case that she is covering? How far are you willing to cross the line? What are you willing to do? So I finished the first. Um, It was released last year. I just completed the second in the series and that'll be out next summer. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I'm very proud of it because it, again, like you, gave me an opportunity to step out of my comfort zone. You're acting, right? And I'm sure that was something that yeah, you know, people say, wait, you're, you're, you're like, oh, do I want to do this? I don't know. Let me try. I don't
2: even consider myself acting. But I just I been watching the stuff since that. I was eight years old. I know. And it, I just said, I love doing it.
1: You did it and you were great at it, but it was out of your comfort zone. You're never at a loss for words, but acting is not what I'm sure wasn't on your bucket list. But the opportunity comes, you kill yeah. it and you do it. So with me... I never thought I'd write a a novel, but I stepped out of my comfort zone and I quite enjoy it. And I was so happy to hear the critical response to it It was phenomenal. And that inspired me to keep going because you do have to keep stepping out of your comfort zone. You still, as a business person, as a brand, Mm -hmm. you got to keep stepping out of your comfort zone because that is how you become a Jerry Jones, Stephen A. Smith.
2: I tell you this, don't rule out the possibility of that being turned into a television series or a movie. Well,
1: you just don't wait. I might it, have it, an it, announcement it, it, here it, it, very it, it, soon.
2: How about that? Yeah. How about that? Look, <laughs> I see my spidey senses yes, tingling. I just find
1: a deal and details to come. But okay. very soon, uh, Jordan Manning the series, which, again, wasn't something that I had planned. Mm-hmm. But when you mm-hmm. step out on faith, when you execute and you are strategic, I believe these things can happen. And and that's what I hope is happening with me. I'm trying to be smart. I'm trying to be a business person. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to be strategic about this point in my career. uh,
2: Congratulations with all of that. But forgive me for asking this question. It's just, I'm very, very curious. Why is it since you knew that your sister's case involved some level of domestic violence? Why is it that this matter has been unsolved? Could you tell our audience about that?
1: Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, what I'm able to say is that when my sister was found murdered in her home, she was in the, found in the backyard of her home in the pool, uh, and she had visible signs of trauma, blunt force trauma to the back of the head, the detectives told my family that the person of interest was someone who was in the home, but they did not feel they would be able to get the DA to indict the person. Um, this was early on in my career. I wasn't a national news figure. I wonder often if it had mm-hmm. happened at this point, would it be different? I was a local reporter in Chicago. And you're not right. thinking at that time, let me call and say, do you know who I am? I'm right. a reporter in Chicago. Right. We need answers. Yeah. We were a family grieving. And where was grieving. this?
2: Where, where did this happen? It was With in Houston. State, in Houston. In Texas. Okay.
1: And we were a family grieving. Um, we knew that there had been domestic violence. Uh, the individual said they had nothing to do with it. And so we were left like so many other families. I just did a show seeking justice where people have gone years, cold cases um, that have gone unsolved and the parents and the family members don't forget. Headlines go away, but we didn't forget. and It wasn't that we didn't want justice. Truly, I know that helpless feeling that families feel every single day when you wonder, is the system working for us or against us? and Combined with, and I've talked about this on my show, my sister had substance abuse issues in her past and we didn't want her to be litigated. You know this as well. Suddenly it becomes what did the victim do and what did she do wrong? What did she do to deserve this? And we did not Mm -hmm. want to send my sister's children through that kind of pain. She was not a bad person An amazing. My sister was beautiful and funny and fun, like the life of the party. I tell people I was the ugly sister. My sister was gorgeous and just inside and out. And I, one of my fondest memories, you know, getting ready for prom and there my sister is like putting my dress together and combing my hair and just being a big sister. And we did not want there to be any opportunity for someone To shame her for what happened to her. So yeah, it's 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 been difficult, and my my nephews uh, have said that they don't want, you know, Crime Stoppers or because I think they're still grappling with it. They lost their mom. They're adults now for sure, and 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 deal with their own trauma with it. But no, it's it's rough when you have been told who did it, but nothing happens.
2: Wow. Yeah, I got you. You know, the book calls out the new industry, spotlights how all lives do not matter equally in the media. There's a term in there home of the missing white woman. Explain that for our audience. What you meant by that, what we should know about that.
1: Well, when we released the book, um, no one could have ever imagined that Gabby Petito, that we would be having this conversation, right? Here's Gabby Petito, a young woman whose life was taken from her. Her family, you know, put in a club that no one wants to be a member of. And the news coverage was all about Gabby Petito. But at the time, there were so many other families of people of color whose cases were being ignored. So now you have their families having to stop and say, wait a minute, what about us? Why are we consistently ignored? Why is it that the media is attracted to one type of missing person versus others? And to Gabby Petito's family's credit, they too said, wait a minute, we want her covered, but we want other people, their loved ones covered as well. But it is, it's, it's a a—it's a systemic problem within the news industry. It's something that I've witnessed and experienced um, in newsrooms where you're sitting there and suddenly it's a white woman is a victim of the crime and it's the lead story as if, you know, that life is more important. And sadly to some news leaders, those lives are more important. Those lives get eyeballs. Those lives, you know, will keep people watching the news and we'll watch the escapades of it. We'll watch the storyline. And, um, at the time I released my book, we were experiencing it yet again. Gabby Petito was the lead in. We all knew her name. But how many other names were never even whispered in rooms, never said in newsrooms, because they did not matter?
2: You're making a difference. You're making a difference, Darren. And here's the thing. You got married age 47, mm-hmm. according to my mm-hmm. notes.
0: Had mm-hmm. a child
2: at age 48.
0: Mm-hmm. You got a
2: hit show. You're winning daytime Emmys, for crying out loud. Uh, uh, writing novels. going to make a movie or a television series. I I just feel it in the air. It's coming very, very soon. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot that you have done. Some people would say a lifetime full of life, uh, life, Mm -hmm. uh, things that you have done. Where do you go from here?
1: Oh, wow. Many, many places, I hope. I, I want to create shows. I want to executive produce shows. There are a lot of very talented people that I'd like to produce and create content. I don't want to be on TV forever. I would love Mm. to, um, you know, I greatly admire Kiki Palmer. She just launched her own digital TV station. You know, I think that there's so many phenomenal things to do not so that I can be on she air. She did a great
2: job in a movie. Nope, da, by oh, the way. She did a great on. job she's in it movie. She was fantastic. She's she was mul- fantastic.
1: She's multifaceted. She's multifaceted. Yes. So I would love to produce content. I'd love to keep writing this novel. I would like to do 10 in this series with Jordan Manning and create this mm-hmm. character. Uh, like when I was a kid, I read, you know, Nancy Drew. I'd like for young people to read Jordan Manning and learn about the industry and get engrossed and involved in her storyline. But for me, you know, my son is a number one priority, you know, he's three. I want him to be mm-hmm. proud of me, but I also want him just to know mom was happy. And my mom was there mm-hmm. rooting beyond and yelling, go take the shoot, you know, take the <laughs> shot. And I just right, had right. someone the other day say so much of the black experience is about the trial and tribulation, but it is important for us, especially people our age, to make sure we change the narrative so that they understand, our children understand, my dad Stephen worked hard. My mom Tamron worked hard, but they were happy. They had fun because some of my fondest memories. I told someone the other day was my mom and dad having their spades parties on the weekend. We'd That's open right. up a big old, you know, enchiladas and nachos, and they'd have their drinks and picnics friends, on and the th- weekend. Yeah, picnics, dominoes. Yep. I want him to see that joy. I don't want him just to see mom working or hear how I got kicked off the Today Show and had to pick myself back up. Those are important beats. But I want him to know, mom had fun, she laughed out loud, and Mm -hmm. joy is always possible in the midst of adversity.
2: I'm so happy for you. I just don't know how happy I am for myself, Tamron, because as I listen to your closing remarks, I'm like, damn, these are all the things I want to do. You I'm going to have to compete what? with you this one. I'm have to, I'm, I, I got my production company. I'm executive producing content. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a little acting. Yes. I'm still doing my sports stuff. Yes. Uh, hell, I might do late night someday, whatever. And I'm like, Pl- wait, stop. Stop,
1: I, I, stop, stop. You need yes. you talk about me. And the mo- you it is time. No offense to the Jimmy's and the James, mm-hmm. but I'm telling you. It is time. It is time. It is time for you to move to late night. It is. You got to do it.
2: You have to do if, it. If, if they it, cu- they came to me. I did Jimmy Kimmel. They loved it. I saw uh, you. I, they loved. Thank you so much. Uh, they, you were they, great. They, uh, thank you so much. I was nervous. I couldn't even, I can't put into words how nervous I was. I was scared really? to death. I never did it I before. I couldn't tell. I never did an opening monologue where I had to make people laugh. And I went eighteen minutes. You're naturally I, I, funny. I, I, I don't know that, Tamron. I don't. I, 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 like, I, I like that you say, it, but I don't know that about myself. So I was, I was scared to death. But I'm listening to all. Well, of that's these why things. they have writers. I'm listening. Jimmy, yeah, that is true. I walked in there that twelve writers. I don't know how funny twelve Tim. writers. I was like for five minutes. I, 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 I was like, I, I got a chance. I could, I could do this. I could do this. So stay, so it. stay James tuned. Spot is open. So stay tuned.
1: But mm.
2: I got to go against the likes of Tamron Hall someday. We we both going to do it. How about that? We both going to do
1: it. No, I listen. I'm going to do this daytime game. I'm going to ride it to the wheels fall off, as Martin said in his stand up years ago that I saw. I think that this is where I was meant to be, where I'm meant to be at this time. And in the next chapter, I'm going to continue to create content. I'm going to teach the next generation how to brand. One of my dreams also is to perhaps do a little professor work at Temple University to teach the real modern version of journalism from the perspective of my experience. So there are so many things, but most important, it is right now critical for the two of us while we are growing these gardens to stop and smell the roses because we have built a lot and we have overcome a lot of obstacles and you have to enjoy what you've done. And that's my goal. I'm going to enjoy. And that doesn't mean luxury trips. That doesn't mean designer. That means sit in the back, laughing with my friends, cooking dinner at my house like my parents did when they had nothing, but they found joy. I got you.
2: Love you, girl. Appreciate you. You, you know, you know I'm always here for you whenever you need me. I'm just a phone call away. You know that.
1: Live from New York, it's uh, Stephen A. Smith. <laughs>
2: you know what I will say this though? It would be live from LA. I'm done with the cold weather. I'm done with the cold weather, Tarrant I'm done with the cold weather. I've had it. I've been in New York all my life. I'm done with the cold weather. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not doing You're the cold weather can. no more.
1: Look, see, already changed. You don't even have a late-night show. Already changed. I'm
2: just That's what they you. Do. I'm, I do. Uh, uh, brother got <laughs> well, to be, wherever got are, got we'll to be, be there. Wherever you are, we'll be there. We'll be there. Love you, sweetie. Thank you so much. You take care yourself.
3: This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me? high? Who gonna stop me? high?
2: Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? I know that's a Stevie Wonder song, but damn it, it applies. That Taryn Hall is something special. She's doing a fantastic job. And I meant what I said when I said she's a marvelous, marvelous interviewer. And I love the fact that she talked about how she doesn't take sides. That she's just one who encourages folks to use her platform as a conduit to tell their stories. Because when you really, really think about it, isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing? Whether it be radio, television, in the world of podcasting or beyond, isn't that what you're supposed to be doing? You're not a fly on the wall. You don't know about people's lives. You know what they reveal. You know what we learn through research and through things that are chronicled where ultimately we'll get access to them. But the best stories are those that emanate from one willing to tell their story truthfully, personally, and through their own lens. And that's what she tries to encourage her subjects, her guests to do, which is why she's making big things happen. And she'll continue to make big things happen. Listening to Tamron's whole story, talking about how her sister was murdered, How there was a history of domestic violence. That's a different subject to get into another day. The vast majority of victims of domestic violence are women. That is a fact. Statistically speaking, from years ago, when we talk about domestic violence, 85% of the time, the women are victims and they're telling the truth. There are a few liars sprinkled in there, but not many. And on far too many occasions for... Too, too long throughout history, women and their plights have been ignored. And we're living in a different age now where we ain't tolerating that nonsense. We ain't having it anymore. And guess why? It ain't because of, you know what? Me too. It ain't because of, you know, we scared to lose our job. We're men. And real men understand the real value of women. Starts with our mamas, to our aunts, to our sisters and cousins, to friends, to lovers, in some cases to wives, obviously to daughters. All of those things are relevant. And so when you hear Taryn speaking about that and what level of inspiration it served for her, what did she tell you? She said she wanted to be an inspiration to women out there, specifically black women who were being ignored. Because when white women were victimized in some way, shape, form or fashion, you hear it paraded all over the news and all over the headlines and what have you. But black women were an endangered species. They were being forgotten. Wait I'm telling you, I haven't even talked to her yet. And wait till you see my interview with Cheryl Lee Ralph, because that's coming up. I promise you, Cheryl Lee Ralph is going to bring that up. Because she's been all about that for decades. Endangered species because black women, the forgotten species. We ain't forgetting y'all on this show. Not on this podcast. It ain't N.O. mercy. It's K.N.O.W. No mercy. No mercy. We know mercy. And we know gratitude as well. And appreciation. And it belongs aimed in the directions of the tearing halls of the world and people who think like others are trying to make it a difference in this world. It matters. I was especially inspired by when she talked about getting let go and departing from today. And how it was then that she recognized her true worth. Because she was out there cast aside and people had counted her out. But mama said, no, baby. You got nothing to worry about. You're going to do it again. I started off this show telling you what I could relate to. And I brought up two of my buddies. Trusted confidants and Terry Fox and Rashawn McDonald. But I'm going to tell you something. Or rather someone they don't compare to. They're not even in the same stratosphere. And they know it and they'll smile when I say this. Mama. My mama. Passed away in 2017. You'll hear me on this microphone and sometimes you'll hear my voice get low and you'll see or feel me just reflecting and internalizing or whatever. It's because she's with me every day. She's the greatest woman I've ever known. The most beautiful human being I've ever known. She taught me what love is. Not because of what I felt for her, which is obvious, but because of what I knew she felt for me. We're going to have a show one day in the very near future about being single and being a man. And how being unmarried and single is one of the loneliest positions to be in in this world. Specifically when you lose your mama. Because when you lose your mama and you're single and the baton hasn't been passed to someone that's going to take you by the hand and take care of you and keep you from standing in the abyss that you'll inevitably fall in. When that didn't happen before mama passes away. As a man, you don't realize until that moment that the one person in this world who loved you unconditionally, who loved you immeasurably, whose love and devotion to you was unwavering no matter what you did, no matter how many times you screwed up, no matter how effed up you might be, was mama. And when they go, you're all alone. Wondering, will I ever have that in my life again? Taryn Hall don't have to worry about that. And it ain't just because she's not a man, it's because her mama is still here. And that inspiration that she provided is what anybody with a great mama knows all too well. It propelled her and pushed her to a level she didn't even realize she could ultimately obtain. It was her mama's voice that was telling her all of that stuff. It was her mama's voice that was saying, don't count her out. Which made Taryn Hall say, don't count me out. And now she's reaching back because she's ascended. But she's reaching back and she's reaching down. And she's saying, don't you count yourself out either. And when you have people like that, that you meet, that you run across... That teach you about what that's about. That inspire you to continue to move forward. Don't get whiplash constantly looking back reflecting on things you can't change. It does something. You know what it does? It can turn you into the next Stephen A. Smith. It can turn you into the next Tamron Hall or Steve Jobs or Michael Bloomberg or Robert Downey Jr. or Oprah Winfrey. It can do those kind of things for you. If you're willing to chart a new path when called upon to do so and march forward, don't let anybody count you out and get away with it. More importantly, don't count yourself out. I just told you why. Taron Hall just told you why. And any other name of any other successful person that's out there that's willing to reach back and give back and espouse their words of wisdom and motivation and inspiration to you will tell you the same thing. Remember that. Hold on to that. And see me at the finish line. Cause you'll be there too. When it comes to success, it ain't monopolized by one person or even one species. It's for the world to grab a hold of. Remember that and keep on marching forward. Thank you again to the wonderful Tamron Hall. Let me extend a thank you to my listeners as well. My podcast, No Mercy with Stephen A. Smith comes on every Monday, Wednesday and Friday continue to look for continue to expect it because I'm just getting started like I keep telling y'all I got a whole lot more to say a whole lot more interviews to do a whole lot more issues to tackle and I can't wait not only am I not tired I'm more energized than ever before I can't wait till my next podcast and I hope you can't either again my heartfelt gratitude keep listening and remember I may be a sports guy Because I always have been, but I'm much more than that. You know why? Because you don't have to know sports to know mercy. Peace and love, everybody. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The cat
1: information.